Good morning. Welcome to the House of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you too. Uh, we are in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. We will take verses 1 through 13, the Gospel according to Mark. And if you're joining us online and you are able to, when we stand to read the Word of God, you are encouraged to stand to, as are those in the lobby. Would you stand now for the reading of God's Word? Beginning in verse 1, Mark chapter 8. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke and gave to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to them also, set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now, those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. Immediately, he got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmathua. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them, and getting into the boat, again departed to the other side. Please be seated. The hungry, then the difficult. That is the title of this morning's consideration. And here we have this very large group of people, a multitude, over 4,000 people have come out to be touched by Jesus, to receive his teachings, and to their surprise and amazement to be fed by him. And he, in turn, he cared for them healing them, teaching them, and, as I mentioned, feeding them. Once he has finished with them and he leaves this area, he comes amongst those who confront him. These are a difficult type. They happen to be very religious. Religion can turn a person upside down or right side up. It's uh, very easy to be turned upside down for anything in life. Uh, this is part of the curse. It's part of sin in this world. And those of you who drive on the road, you know how quickly you can be turned upside down. And uh, there are those that uh, have your buttons, the sequence codes, to activate your anger and disappointment, annoyance, uh, you know, little children in the home, older children in the home, uh, just relationships, period. 
And so we guard against. We don't want to be the, this like the difficult group in this section we're going to consider in a little while. Getting way ahead of myself, the question is, do people who are genuinely annoying, do they know they're annoying? And if they don't, that's annoying. What about mean people? Do mean people know that they're mean? I think they do. I think that particular group, they, get, they like, they, they enjoy the feeling of being mean and cutting others down. If this is you, the mean group, the Lord needs to work on you. That's a very serious problem, and you need to come up for prayer. Or stay stuck in pride and stay that way and find out how useless you will be. As for the annoying ones, well, you <laughs> you'll figure it out. I hope by hearing the scriptures read in these situations that come before us. And that's why one of the reasons we come to church is to see ourselves in the scripture, is to have it put up next to our own behavior and say, Lord, do I do this? Am I annoying like these guys? And if he says yes, then you say, what do I have to do to correct this and keep it corrected? Thus, the adventure of Christianity. Well, when those who were difficult did confront him, those religious leaders who were dishonest with their own scripture and therefore difficult people and dishonest with him, he would not put up with them. Well, that's a brief overview of what we have before us. And so now we first take on those who are coming to him hungry for his care, his touch, his healings. And then as a bonus, they will be fed with uh, bread and fish. Verse 1, chapter 8, Mark's Gospel. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat. Uh, pardon me, let me reread that first verse. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude, verse 2, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And so we go back up to verse 1. This location is very likely still in Decapolis, uh, going by the previous chapter, Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Uh, that's kind of significant to the story because he is still in Gentile territory. He is going to perform this miracle where the people are predominantly non-Jewish. This, of course, is the second multiplication of the bread and the fish. In the first instance, his audience, the multitude, over 5,000 men, probably as much as 20,000 people. You check out the women and children. Uh, they were predominantly Jewish. That's pretty uh, revealing as a Bible student. We see early on that Christ ministers to the Jew and the Gentile. The disciples are going to have to deal with this in detail as the gospel begins to move out of Israel. But, of course, that's for <clears throat> when we get to the book of Acts. This massive Gentile multitude drawn to him, what he could do for them, and not in a dishonest way, but they were needy. They had needs. And you can bet they're bringing out their, those that are sick and in need of care on, on, in carts. Um, they're coming in large numbers. It says the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat. Matthew adds, besides the women and children, Mark, does leave, Mark leaves that out. Incidentally, of the four Gospels, all four of them cover the first 
multiplication of the fish and the bread amongst the Jews. This one is only covered by Matthew and Mark. And so we'll be cross-referencing some of Matthew because he gives us a few details that Mark does not include. For instance, in Matthew 15, verse 30, Matthew writes, Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the lame, well, they're coming out a long distance. These are where the the carts are going to bring them. And that's significant to the story because when they take up the fragments of the fish and the bread, they're going to put them in these large baskets. Well, where'd they get the baskets? I mean, people don't walk around them strapped on their back, empty baskets. Well, they're in the carts. I mean, this was sort of like your pickup truck of the day. And you, you had these things in there. Whereas when he did it for the Jews, they had the smaller baskets with them which is a significant distinction for the, the Gentiles used the larger baskets, the historians tell us, and uh, the, the Jews tended to go with the smaller, uh, the smaller baskets. It says here in verse 1, Jesus called his disciples to, to him and said. Now, so he's bringing the disciples into this situation. He wants to feed them. And he, is fed, he has fed them spiritually already by his teachings and his healings. Now, He's going to physically feed them. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But you still have to have bread. In the manna in the wilderness or the manna in your kitchen. Where it doesn't matter where the manna is, as long as you get it and use it uh, uh, to the glory of the king. So he's going to use the disciples to meet needs. He still does this. God tends to work through human means whenever he can. Uh, there are some things that are absolutely out of our control. Uh, the, the, you know, the universe, the, the, the spin of the earth. There are things that are just beyond us. But there are other things that he joins to us. And he calls them into fellowship with them so that his blessings can flow through human channels. All right, big question. What about me? Does Christ ever work through me? Does he ever flow through me to bless people? Or do I refuse and I just end up draining blessings from people? He is going to multiply the bread, but he is going to require human hands to distribute the bread. Now, we covered this a little bit on Wednesday, and I think it's very appropriate to bring it back into this morning's consideration. When Christ uh, rose Lazarus from the dead, men had to roll away the stone. Men had to unwrap the grave clothes that Lazarus was in. When he saved that persecutor, Saul of Tarsus, he did not do it without the words of his martyr, Stephen. And so there we see God, of course, doing the miraculous, but involving his servants or involving people. And he is always on the lookout for souls to use. And the flesh, of course, wants to be used on its terms, not his terms. And that's where much of the conflict begins. And it's good and wise to nip that in the bud, as many Christians do. Reading from Isaiah chapter 6, this is that vision Isaiah had of the Lord sitting on his throne. And, uh, you know, he's moved and he's in the spirit. 
And he hears, he writes it down for us, Isaiah 6, verse 8. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who shall go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And what a ministry it was. What a, you know, Jeremiah didn't want to go into the ministry, but he did. Uh, God let him in. Moses did not want to go into the ministry. But when these men went into the ministry for the Lord, great things happened. Esther did not want to be used initially. Mordecai convinced her with a simple sentence. Well, and not use someone else. And her response essentially was over my dead body. And that's exactly what she said because she put her life in jeopardy. Second Chronicles, the great prophet, goes to the king to rebuke him. He says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And so God is looking for people to use. He's doing it right here. He sees the, the people have no food. They've been with him three days. They have spent their provisions. And now he's not going to send them away without caring for them. And he's not going to care for them without his disciples. Verse 2, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. Of course, this compassion runs deeper than the things of this life with Christ. And that's where we get tripped up because we want to, of course, uh, limit his care for us right here, right now. And if he doesn't do this and that and save me from these things, then uh, does he really care? And of course, by faith, we know that he does. And he has an, an, entire, an entire eternity to demonstrate his love to us beyond the cross. Now he demonstrates his love to us and that Christ Jesus died for sinners, died for us. And he's going to continue to demonstrate it throughout the ages to come. And so, again, uh, knowing that they would struggle if they had been sent away hungry and having no intention of sending them that way, even those outside of the covenant, he's going to care for them. First John chapter 2, verse 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. He's the one that's dealt with our sins personally. And then John says, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And we see him ministering to representatives of the whole world. Those outside of the Jewish covenant, Gentiles, he cares for them. And uh, the whole world, when we talk about God's love, means just that, not just the elect. If it meant just the elect, he would say God loved the elect. But he says the whole world. God is looking to save sinners and he's looking to use his people to be a part of that process. And every Christian should be concerned about that. And so here they are, three days, their provision spent, verse 3, and if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. How damaging it would have been to all of his work, the teachings, the healings, and then they get home and they're exhausted if they make it. What good would that do? Well, of course, he has the foresight to address this and Clearly, when, he, when it says here, when Christ is saying to his disciples that some have come from afar, how did he know that? Well, he had to interact with people, more than likely, through interacting with the people that he was ministering to. Someone coming up to him said, I've come all the way from so-and-so, and it registered with him. He did not dismiss it. Still means something today. 
Those who come afar to Christ, he still notices. He still cares. He still has compassion. James writes, And one of you says to them, those in need, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Someone with some critical need, some urgent need, having nowhere else to go, and they're in front of you, and you do not meet that need, that's negligence. And negligence is always a serious thing. In verse 4, when it comes to spiritual matters, verse 4, then his disciples answered, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? You and I would have said, you cannot be that dumb. You were there when 5,000 people, men alone, were fed. How can you ask such a question? Matthew and Mark make no comment from the Lord. He doesn't call them out. He just keeps going forward. I so appreciate that. He's not looking to stick it to me. When it's critical, he'll bring it out. Well, when he's, okay, look, you know, it's so hard. Were they overwhelmed? Had they seen so many miracles, they no longer could keep track? Were they themselves exhausted mentally? I, I, I would not count that out at all. They had... Um, you, you would think having lived through this situation before, they would apply it. Maybe they thought he wouldn't do it for the Gentiles. Either way, the, one of the big things that stands out for me is that he just continues to do what he's going to do. And how, you know, I walk away and say, how clumsy we are in our faith. I'm not ready to judge the disciples when they make mistakes every time they make a mistake. There are some times that like, yeah, that one was, that one I struggle with. But overall, I mean, I, I, if I lived then, would I have recognized Christ as the Messiah? As they had come to recognize him? I would hope so. But again, the Lord does not rebuke them. He will remind them of both the feedings. We'll get to that later in this chapter. Well, look at that down at Math, uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 18. Jesus giving them another lesson. He says, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So they remembered those little details. And he dismisses it here. He gets back to it later only because it comes up. It's, it's, it's pertinent to what he's dealing with when we move later on in Mark's gospel. So I look at that and I say, I want to get it right the first time. I do not want to dismiss his miracles. But I know as I'm reading this, I say to myself, Lord, yeah, I, I know you can do anything. The problem is there are times you don't. And that's where I get messed up. Stephen, we mentioned him earlier. What did Christ do for Stephen? He let the stones fly. He let them kill him. He stood up to watch that happen as he received King Stephen into the kingdom. Christ has got a whole other way of working with things, and I'm never going to find those things out outside of his word. And that requires... Constantly going over it, repaving, 
filling the potholes of doubt and confusion and absence of memory. It takes hard work to be a Christian, and it's worth it. Is there any Christian that wants to come to Christ and say, I don't have to do anything now, I'm saved? Well, your salvation will be questioned after a while. It is hard work. And once we grab that, once we understand, okay, it's hard work. In the midst of all the other things I have to do in life, this is still a demand upon me. And it's worth it. Narrow and straight is the way that Christ has laid before us. But once we begin to understand that, it's not so bad. It's when we fight it. Acting like laziness is somehow going to be blessed. Acting, behaving as though negligence is somehow honorable with Christ. When we face the facts, we get stronger. We're not weaker. Maybe after that initial shock may weaken us, but when we regroup. Satan is afraid you're going to regroup. When something happens to you that is horrific or grievous, Satan is afraid that you're going to regroup. That's... um, It's good to keep them like that. It's good to understand that we are going to regroup. The disciples did after the the crucifixion. They were shattered, but they were still gathering. And when he appeared to them, they regrouped. In verse 5, then he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. Now in chapter 6, when he multiplied the bread and the fish for the Jewish people, it was five loaves and two fish. And so it's a distinct Uh, difference between the two miracles. It's not a repeat. Verse 6. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke and gave to his disciples to set before them, and they set them before the multitude. I have criticisms of how the New Testament is written and the Old Testament and so should you if you're a Bible citizen. Uh, Bible citizen. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a Bible student, you look at these and say, Lord, why, can't, why, did you have to, why is the sequence out all the time? Why do I have to do this detective and puzzle work? Well, because you'd be worse off if, you didn't, if I didn't force you to, re, to consider these things and think. My people are supposed to think. I didn't give you a brain just to figure out what you're going to wear in the morning. I've given you a brain to do other things to my glory. Don't be afraid of that. Uh, You know, maybe you don't get good grades in school. Well, you can get outstanding grades with Christ nonetheless. He's not looking for, you know, these pseudo-genius. No one's a genius to God. I mean, who are you going to stand up before the Lord? You know, I graduated genius school two years early. (laughs) It's like... (laughs) Anyway... He commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. Why? Because he understands that disorder robs us of blessings. Order. It is very, it is valuable. You know, if the enemy can scramble us, fragment us, break up, cause disorder, he's going to do it. How many churches have gone down because of disorder, spiritual disorder? Somebody out of line, not where they're supposed to be enough of the time, too often... Methodically, he went about resolving this situation. Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, Let all things be done decently and in order. And that church needed it. Because they, could they couldn't control themselves. 
They felt that they could just, you know, the pastor's preaching, that gift of teaching is working. I'm going to interrupt that because I've got a rush of a feeling. And they get up and start speaking. And Paul said, look, you're not helping God. You're helping the devil. You're bringing in confusion and disorder. Let it be done decently and in order because that's how God has set the universe. If he hadn't, we would never survive. There's something too many churchgoers don't seem to care for in the church. And the pastors oversee the church and they keep order in the house because the people, if, if you're left to ourselves, we will create disorder. One person wants it this way and another one wants it that way. You've got a tug of war now. And folks get offended. They think because they're Christians, they've got to say so in the assembly. And they don't. And you know, Paul never asked permission. Paul said, what do you think? What color should we make the drapes? He never asked anybody. This is what God is leading to me. This is the direction we're going. And uh, they loved him. And uh, don't be taken by that. Don't, don't, and a lot, you know, just if, if, if I'm speaking to you, you're wrong, I'm right. I like it that way. But I want you to be right with me. There's some humor in that. And I, I'll say it later again for those of you. Anyway, he knew how to control the crowd. <laughs> I think some Christians are so afraid that the pastor is going to become, you know, a dictator. Uh, and they then come to their houses and, you know, what? Have you rearranged the living room? That's a terrible place for that love seat. <laughs> Just abusing his authority. Here he comes, here he comes. Quick, close the door. Anyway, he knows how to control a crowd, and he's preventing a stampede. Remember, keep, keep this in mind. It's very important to a point I'm going to make later on as students of the word. There's over 4,000 people here. And... He's controlling the stampede. It says, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks. You know, when he takes from us, it is never without a great cause. When he takes something, whatever it is from you, it is never without a greater cause. You may not see it now. You may not see it in this lifetime. But by faith, we accept it. This is some, one thing that distinguishes us from the unbeliever. We accept it. I am the king's man. And if the king says this is how it's going to be, that's how it's going to be. Because I have enough proof in my faith to trust him. God told the prophet Ezekiel, and Ezekiel, by the time Ezekiel comes along, the Jews are in bondage, in, in well, captivity, in Babylon and throughout that empire. And uh, the prophets had talked about this coming. And God is driving home other points because many of the Jews that were in captivity were not living righteously. So he raises up a man like Ezekiel to, to address them. And God makes this comment about their captivity. He says, um, <clears throat> where do I want to start? I just thought, I have done nothing without cause that I have done. That is a characteristic of God. When he acts, when he gets up to do something, there's a great cause. And so if he takes something from you, there's a cause behind it. It says that he broke what he took from them. He took the seven loaves and gave thanks, and he broke them. And what he takes from us, oftentimes, in the interest of ministry, uh, there is going to be things that break. Ministry causes pain. There's no way around it. Broken hearts. Broken ambitions. Broken friendships. Broken expectations. What are you going to do with those things? This is what determines the maturity of the saints. How are we going to respond to these 
letdowns and heartbreaks. Still waiting these men is the grand disillusionment that's coming from an unlikely place, Jerusalem. There they will arrest their master, who they never saw fail before, and they will murder him, and they will do it in public. And the disciples are going to have to deal with that. I would not want to go through that. Eleven of them would handle it differently from just one of them. And that one, Judas Iscariot, he was already outside of the twelve when it came to his heart. Christ talks about this. In John chapter 6, Jesus answered them. And this is about the same time, uh, the time stamp of that we're reading our story here in John 6. Jesus answered, did I not choose you, the twelve? One of you is a devil. Oh, man. Could you imagine being in that group, hearing this from Christ? Later on, they're going to ask when it comes to betraying, is it me? I don't want to be that guy. You don't have to be that guy unless you, that's what you want to do. Again, in John 12, and he said, uh, speaking about Judas, not that he cared for the poor, John writing, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. They didn't know this at the time, and they were pretty steamed when they found out. So my point is, Judas was not one of them at this point because he chose not to be. Christ gave him every opportunity to be like-minded with these men, and he bailed out. But back to the 11 who did not bail out, they would be disillusioned. Judas was too, but for different reasons. Judas wanted Christ to come, set up the king, do whatever he was in his head, it was wrong. And these men, they too thought Christ was going to set up the kingdom and were disillusioned. And maybe you, maybe you come to Christ, you read your Bible, you see these great promises, this magnificent creator and savior, and then you are confronted with something in life and you're disillusioned by how he treats it. What are you supposed to do? Job, in his book, says it very clearly. Though he slay me, I will trust him. I trust him. There's nowhere else to go. Peter said, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. Nobody is saying what you're saying. Peter did not say, where else are we going to go? You've got the miracles. You've got the goodie bag. He said, what you say is true. That's the deciding factor. And so, being his disciple includes continuing in submission, regardless of whatever emotional or physical pain you may incur. Uh, Judas, again, excused the, uh, refused these terms, but Job and Joseph embraced it. I mean, Joseph, his principle of faith did not save him. All the things he believed about the God of Abraham didn't seem to benefit him one bit. His own family threw him away, sent him into slavery. If he died in the salt mine somewhere, tough luck. And then he, he, he gets arrested for a crime he didn't commit. And he just kept trusting God. He didn't like it. He tells the jailer, uh, the, the butler, when, when, he's deli- when he's freed... The butler is freed, and Joseph, stuck in the prison still, says, don't forget me in this place. When you get back to Pharaoh, don't forget me, because he wanted out. He just wanted his freedom so he could go home. How long he lived this way, we don't know, but it was years. We do know that. 
I draw from that when I have my pity parties, and I want my pity parties. <laughs> Gets a little hat. That little string always pinches the skin, does it not? But anyway, I struggle with how much work I think I put into ministry over the decades and seemingly, to me, have a disproportionate fruit. I read about the priests and how they would have the pomegranates on the bottom of their robe, which was to symbolize the fruit of ministry on behalf of the people. I struggle with personal shortcomings and lack of spiritual strength. Sometimes I'm just upset with God. And I know I'm not supposed to be, which adds to me being upset. And yet, it's one foot in front of another for the king because I'm his man. And I'm interested in him. And he is interested in me. And if he takes me and he breaks me, then right over that, done. Just like he wanted. Because I trust him. And when I stand up in heaven... And all the dust from this cursed life has settled somewhere else because it won't be in heaven. I will be in heaven, still the king's man. And this is true for every believer that there is. And so Paul says that I may know him, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That's what we're talking about. Disillusionment is a death of the flesh. Our view. I did this right. I did that right. And this is what I get from it? Yep. Now what are you going to do? Well, I'm your man. I'm your child. I'm your manservant. I'm your maidservant. Whatever the case may be. And so it says here in verse 6, And he gave to his disciples to set before them fellowship and ministry. And they will drink from his cup also. They will suffer in Christ as in the years to come. So we, here we are, seeing a picture of ourselves. He gave to his disciples to set before them. Now he gives us the gospel. And all that it includes, he sets it before us. And we're to partake of that gospel. And then we're to give to others. But we can no more save souls than we can create a star. But we can serve the gospel. We can do that and that is more glorious than creating a star. To lead a soul, a star is going to burn out, and that's the end of it. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's some scientific details about stardust. <laughs> but overall, it perishes with the using, but the soul does not. And this lesson was what they needed, and he was saying, there's a need here, and you can't fill it. I'm going to fill it, but I'm going to do it with you. And I'm not going to do it without you. He could have just threw, you know, hamburgers into everybody's pocket and been done with it. Of course, that'd be silly, and he didn't do it that way. Ministry would not depend on their ability, but their availability. Anybody can hand out bread and fish, pretty much. Not anybody. I mean, there's some exceptions. But overall, these 12 men could. It was their availability that made that happen. And another lesson a lot of Christians don't get. Oh, I just don't have time. Oh, I'm not available. Well, there are things that need to get done. You come into the sanctuary, it's nice and clean. You come into the church, the bathrooms are clean. Somebody's doing that. We don't have the bathroom-o-matic where you just, you know, kind of like shove it down the hallway and let it do its thing. Uh, we've got real servants that have to go in there 
with riot gear on and uh, take care of business. So, <laughs> it's kind of goofy when you think about it. Christ working through those who made themselves available. Christ ministering to the multitudes through them. And this is the same way today. Christ could use them as his instruments because they made themselves available. King Saul did not. We talked about this Wednesday night. Saul, King Saul was supposed to be the leader as God's people were the instruments in God's hand to execute judgment on the Amalekite people for their wickedness was, was off the chart and now had to be dealt with. But because of selective obedience, King Saul hindered God's work, which caused problems generations later in the age of Mordecai and Esther. And so I don't want to be a King Saul on any level. It says here, and they set them before the multitude, which is the objective, verse 7. They also had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. You see, it's kind of the way it's written. It's like, why, why didn't Mark just put that with the fish? I mean, the bread. It's just fragmented, it seems. In reading it, and you pay and start digging into this, it's in addition to the bread, taking the bread and blessing it, bless, uh, blessing it he does it with the fish also. I think it is true. The Lord does not do for us what we can do for ourselves. Or else, you know, you know, I would never have to go to a gas station again. How nice would that be? You just drive by it and you're full. Or just better still, you just don't run out of gas. <laughs> so, anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a fact. If there's something that we're supposed to be doing, then, then we're supposed to be doing it. And this was one of the problems with Moses when, God, when Moses wouldn't circumcise his son and God was going to kill him. Uh, that's pretty serious. Um, Moses was to be the leader of the covenant people, and he was neglecting to do a critical task because Moses didn't care for it. Was it not for his wife, we would not have had the story of Moses. But God knew all of this, of course. So the disciples who could not multiply the fish and the bread, they could serve it to the multitudes, verse 8. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. I think verse 8 is a summary of what has already taken place. And there's a departure here with me and other commentators. Almost all, in fact, all of the commentators that I highly respect, and I turn to their wisdom often, they're all dead and gone and in heaven, uh, I disagree with them on this. I have to for conscience sake. And you make your choice, make the right choice. <laughs> agree with me. Uh, so they ate and were filled. See, I think that's the disciples first. And I'll, I'll tell you why in a moment. And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Interesting, we don't read about the Lord eating during these multiplications of the bread and the fish. He told his disciples, I have, you know, food to eat you know nothing about. He probably did, but I, we, I, we just not, it's not said. But back to, and they took up the seven large baskets, baskets of leftover fragments. Where they get the baskets? I already mentioned the carts. These, the different Greek word used for baskets here than in Mark chapter 6. Uh, these are the larger ones, large enough to put a human in. When Paul was lowered uh, from the wall in Damascus and fleeing from his, for his life, uh, it was the same Greek word, that type of basket, like a hamper. 
which is consistent with, as I mentioned, the Gentiles. Anyway, the part that becomes a little difficult is the leftover fragments. Leftover fragments from whom? Are you telling me, and this is where the, uh, the, the commentators treat this uh, this way. Uh, the people, the 4,000 plus people ate, and then the disciples went and picked up the fragments and filled up these seven baskets with fragments of bread and fish. I have a big problem with that. Because just think about, I mean, just to go to a stadium and you know, go pick up the breadcrumbs, and what, then what do you do with it? Uh, I think it's work enough feeding these people. Get it? That was the objective, is to feed the people. How did they get the food? Well, they didn't stand in line. There was no drive through So the, the disciples had to eat, collect their fragments, and then into the baskets, and then that is what they shared from. I've always approached it this way. I approached the other miracles this way. Uh, you may differ with it. Those who say these are leftover fragments uh, don't see Marcus summarizing and out of sequence now. But logistically, I, I don't see how you do it. Um, clearly, the disciples did not take any of this with them, because when we get to verse 14, Jesus is going to say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and the disciples are going to say, oh, because we didn't bring meat with, uh, bread with us, he's getting on our case. Did I lose you on this? I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> see, hands raising. I question. <laughs> so, just to summarize what I'm saying, going back to verse 7, uh, verse 8. And as a Bible student, I can't dismiss these things. I need to crack the case. And if I can't crack it, then finally I'll, I'll surrender and I'll tap out and say, I don't know what that means. But that's not here. If here I look at this, they, so they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. The, the question is, who is them? And most commentators say it is the 4,000 plus people, and I say it can't be. Because how long would it they would be out there all day collecting? What do you do? I mean, it would just get a hamper full, seven baskets. It's just not working. Okay, you might be saying, listen, okay, I got the point. I've made my decision. I'm not telling you what my decision is. But let's move on to verse 9. And I know now after service, if you come up to me and want to talk about this, I'm, I'm very open to it. I mean, I, I, I'm going to smile and grin if you don't see my opinion and just... When are they going to leave? <laughs> Kidding. Now, those who had eaten were about fourth. No, Pastor, you can't be human. Oh, yeah, I can. <laughs> now, those who had eaten were about 4,000. And he sent them away. It's done. I think they ate. They tapped their belly like the rest of us do. And left. Uh, it was an amazing time. Who in the history of the world has ever done anything like this, not once, but twice? Anything man can do, Jesus Christ could do better. That's why we love him so much. Matthew 15, verse 38. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. I read it because Mark doesn't mention the women and children. Matthew does. Uh, uh, they did not live by bread alone. Here's another interesting thing. The blessing was big. He taught them. He healed them. He spent time with them. And then he feeds them miraculously. Jabez, you know the prayer of Jabez in, in First Chronicles. We read it this way. This is a man that starts off 
He's introduced to us as an honorable man. And Jabez called on God, the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed. We stop there. In the Hebrew, it is, you would bless me, bless me. It's emphatic. Jabez believed God could bless him, bless him. Not a morsel of a blessing, but a lot of a blessing. And he doesn't say then that you would then, you know, enlarge my garage. Give me that in-ground swimming pool with servants. Because, I, I mean, if you're going to get these things, who wants to maintain it? You need folks to do it. So let's go back to his prayer. Oh, that you would bless me indeed. That's how the translators have dealt with it. And enlarge my territory. He wasn't an introvert. And that's really what it is. Expand my influence. That your hand would be with me. And that you would keep me from evil. That I may not cause pain. Oh man, this guy was not mean. He was treated that way. He wasn't treated so his brothers, nobody knows their names. He's sort of the guy, his name means pain. He's sort of the guy who was the outcast. He doesn't want to hurt anybody. That I may not cause pain. And then it says this. So God granted him what he requested. Is this guy just, you know, living life and he makes this prayer and somebody captures it. And God preserves it forever. I want to pray like this man. Well, the point, the connection is God blessed them. He blessed them. He didn't just feed them food. Verse 10, immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. No storm? <laughs> kind of whenever they get in a boat, oh, either somebody's not going to catch anything or there's going to be a rocking of the boat. This location is not really known, uh, but they're now returning, uh, go, heading back to the uh, area where the Jews are the predominant people. Verse 11, uh, then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. Yeah. Why? Uh, Satan, from the start, tempted and tested Christ, wanted some great sign. Matthew chapter 4, then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, which is God the Son, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your little foot against a stone. That's the kind of idea Satan's coming with. Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So Satan takes the scripture, takes it out of context, abuses the context, abuses the scripture. Christ says, yeah, the Bible also says this, and he shuts him down. And people who demand signs are usually in the habit of demanding more signs. Uh, that demand is not uh, a, a noble act. Uh, these men were not sincere. As a Tendency is of the legalist, the one that lives by rules and regulations as opposed to the grace and love of God. They came to pick a fight. You know any religious folks like that? They love to pick a fight. They're just waiting for the conversation to get to the, their, their pet point so they can hammer you with it. Um, a kick in the shin usually handles that. No, no, it does not. That would not be. That was the flesh crying out. <laughs> the spiritual man. Never mind. Let's go to verse 12. But he sighed deeply in his spirit. Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. 
There's that sigh again. It came up in chapter 7 when he was healing the deaf mute. And it was the sigh of, you know, sin has done this to people. Uh, if you, you felt that way about sin, you know God feels, uh, has the same idea. Uh, within this sin, there is sorrow. There is regret. There is anger. There's not just one thing in this sigh. Uh, anger towards those who are making it easy for Satan to damn their souls. And how do they make it easy for Satan to damn their souls? By rejecting truth and the very scripture that they claim to hold so high. Jesus will later say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one that kills the prophet stones those who were sent to her. And he says, how often I wanted to gather your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wing. But you were not willing. He's willing to bless these men, too. They're not willing. And the deep sighs are because of the hardness of their hearts. The dishonesty in their minds. How many people come to church like that? Stubbornness of their wills. No, they have no. They can't refute anything he's saying, but that's not going to stop them from refuting him anyway. What's he supposed to do? Pin a medal on these men? The language is very strong. And it is a glimpse into the heart of God. When he is faced with those who are dishonest and damning their own soul by helping Satan damn them, what can God do but sigh? And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Knowing that they have no interest in believing him. They'll get their signs. They already had many signs. Surely I say to you, no signs shall be given to this generation. So flat out, he says, no. You've got to love it because they needed to hear that. And who else would tell them no? Everybody else was afraid to disagree with them, especially in public. Those who sign, always looking for sign, there are those who are always looking you know, for omens, reading omens into everything, ignoring faith. In fact, mingling faith with faithlessness leaves you with faithlessness. And we guard against that. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament, the just shall live by faith. Paul grabs that three times, he tells us. The just shall live by faith. Romans and Galatians and I believe Hebrews. I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. Uh, so, uh, anyway, I can go on, but we're about out of time. Verse 13, and he left them, and getting into the boat, departed to the other side. He sailed away from them. They were a waste of his time. There were other people that he could reach. What he had to offer, they weren't interested in. And so, he does what he told his disciples in Matthew 10, and whoever will not receive... You nor hear your word when you depart from that house or city. Shake off the dust from your feet. I close with this verse from Philippians. Paul writing from jail. Again, I like to think whenever we read Paul's letters, he doesn't, he's not saying, hey, get me a good lawyer. He's concentrating on ministry where he is. Like a lily among thorns, so is my beloved. He grows where, he, where God planted him. You guys need to get that kind of faith. And when you get it, tell me how you did it. <laughs> Philippians 2, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Amen. <laughs> among whom you shine as lights in the world. Don't forget that you're not supposed to be many politicians you're supposed, or many pundits. You're supposed to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. And so am I. May God help us to do it. Let's pray. Our Father, just a record before us is enough. 
to convince, to rebuke, to exhort, to submit to you, to look up to you, to question our own behavior. Let a man examine himself that he is to see if he's really in the faith. We thank you for these words. You could repeat them to us next week and we would still come to have to face ourselves before you. Yet, whenever we examine ourselves, we're not alone, nor are we at a disadvantage. If we do it honestly, we know that you are with us. We know that you are looking to feed us, to minister to us, that you have compassion on us. And for that, we are deeply grateful. We ask that uh, you would indeed use us to your glory. And as this moment, at this moment, Lord, as I am speaking, perhaps someone is listening who has never opened their heart to you and may be hearing about these things from you. Your Holy Spirit has been ministering to their heart, turning them to you. If you're listening to me and you've not opened your heart to Christ, you have an opportunity right now without uh, trying to persuade you or trying to scare you uh, unnecessarily so. Just laying out the facts. There's going to come a day when you die and you will stand before Christ, believer or not. You will either stand to receive a severe and eternal judgment or you will stand to receive blessings and an entrance into his kingdom. The choice is yours. You had no say-so of being born into this life. You have every bit of say-so of being born again into life eternal. If you make this prayer with me in earnest, God will bless it because he's promised to do so. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your laws and commandments and I come to you to be forgiven. I believe you died for me and rose again. And I believe you live and are here right now. And I ask you to forgive me of all my sin. And I ask that you would be not only the one who saves me from judgment for my sin, but also the one who rules over my life. And I give it to you right here now. Now, Father, if anyone has made that prayer, may it not have been a sheepish prayer where they are ashamed of their confession of faith, but may they be bold enough to at least share it with the pastors at, at the very outset of their confession. These things we commit to you, into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.